You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way to the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel according to Luke chapter 8. And this morning we are picking up where we left off last week. If you're a guest with us, we have been making our way through the Gospel according to Luke. And today we're in chapter 8 and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 37. So I, I want to invite you to make your way there. As I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Beginning in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8, we read, Then they, being Jesus and his disciples, sailed to the the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped onto the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he wore no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, legion, for many have entered him. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to be let... They begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gazarenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. May God bless the preaching of his word. In his book entitled Against the Darkness, which was published in 2019, author Graham Cole begins the first chapter in the following way. He writes, I quote, One of the questions that animates so many people today is whether we are alone in the universe. The thought that humanity is the lonely product of blind evolutionary process chills. 
Surely there's other intelligent life in such a vast expanse as space. Some clearly think so. Indeed, this is the question informing many a film and many a TV show. Indeed, the human imagination is not content with such solitariness. And so we find all sorts of aliens being frequent, popular entertainment. Then he writes, Christians should not be surprised by any of this. We affirm that humanity is not a cosmic orphan thrown up by blind evolutionary processes. As theists, we believe that there is the creator and ourselves. But is that the whole story? Not according to scripture. There is another order of intelligent life that must be factored into the discussion. The angels, both fallen and unfallen. Yet, although Christians espouse belief in such an order of intelligent life, I wonder whether operationally speaking, many of us at least in the secularized West live as though we are effectively alone. And then a few pages later, he says this. So many Christians in the West live as though the story of creation involved in the main just two important characters, God and ourselves. The majority world, however, in contrast, has never forgotten that there is another order of intelligent life, another order of intelligent created life playing its role in the story, namely the angelic order. Friends, as those who live in the West and as those who've been influenced by Western culture, I feel a great burden this morning to remind us that there is another order of created life playing a role in this cosmic drama. And no, I'm not speaking of aliens. Talk of angels, both fallen and fallen, should not come as a surprise to us as we've been making our way through Luke's gospel. Up to this point, we should be aware, we should be fully aware that created beings called angels, both fallen and unfallen, they have played an important role in redemptive history, in world history, and in our history. For example, think about how the the book of Luke began. We didn't even get out of the first chapter before we start encountering these angelic beings. Think about Luke chapter 1 when, when we hear about Zechariah going into the temple to fulfill his duties. And while he's there, we read in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and he fell before him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name 
John. Then we fast forward the very next story and we're told that the angel Gabriel is sent from God to a town in Nazareth and there he comes to a woman who's married to him, betrothed to a man named Joseph, a virgin named Mary, and he appears to her and tells her, you're going to bear a son, the long-awaited Messiah. And then the night that Jesus is born, we're told that there were shepherds out in the fields watching their sheep. And what happens? Angels appear, announcing and proclaiming and celebrating the birth of the Savior. And then we fast forward to chapter 4 when, when all of a sudden Jesus has grown and it's clear that his ministry is beginning and after his baptism, we're told that he's, t- he's led out into the wilderness. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, we're told for 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. All of a sudden, this figure appears. Just like in Genesis 3, there's no warning, there's no explanation. He just appears. Like he appeared in Eden, he appears there in the wilderness. And we're told that he began to tempt Jesus and Jesus withstood every temptation so that in verse 13 we read and when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time and then just a little bit later we 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 hear of Jesus in the temple and while he's there it says a man who is possessed by a demon begins to speak out recognizing who Jesus is. Listen to this, verses 33 and 36. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then later on in chapter 4, verses 40 through 41, we're told as Jesus went about from city to city and village to village, he was healing people and he was casting out demons. Then when we come to chapter 8, if you remember, when we came to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we're hearing that Jesus is continuing on his ministry. Luke gives us another one of these summary statements. Jesus went from town and village proclaiming the message of the kingdom. And it says that he is healing people. He's doing all of these things. And then we meet some of his disciples and we're told in verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. So up to this point, up to this point, we've encountered the angelic. We, we've encountered this other created order. It's unmistakable if we've been paying attention that angels and demons are a big part of the story of Jesus and his plan of redemption. And in our text today, We're informed that after Jesus arrived on the land and got off the boat, the boat in which he and his disciples were on, we're told as soon as he steps onto the land, he's encountered by a man who's under the control of demonic spirits. Look again at verse 27. When Jesus stepped out onto the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, 
And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Here we encounter a man who is desperate and defeated. And what takes place through the rest of the story is an epic scene involving spiritual warfare. That's how we're to view this passage. Not only, listen, not only will this man be delivered from these demons, but these demons will be defeated by Jesus. We must not miss that. It's not just that this this man was delivered. These demons were defeated. Today, I primarily want to focus on their defeat and what it says about Jesus. The fact that he defeated him. What does that say about Christ? In the same way, last week, he had authority over a storm. What did that reveal about him? Today, we see that he defeated these demons. And what does it say about him? And then next week, we will come back and finish the rest of the story. So this morning... I have three points of emphasis that I I believe capture the flow of this story and the theme of this story. Here's the first point I want to draw out. I want us to see the destructive and deadly power of the devil and demons. Now, I would imagine that no one here needs to be convinced that the natural world we live in can be dangerous and deadly. Turn on the news. There's floods. There's fires. There's hurricanes. There's tornadoes. There's earthquakes. There's volcanoes. There's lightning strikes. There's excessive heat waves. There's blizzards and tsunamis and mudslides. Do I need to continue on? We know. We know that the natural world we live in is is deadly and destructive. It can be dangerous. That's why the focus of last week's text was on This storm, this violent storm on the sea. And yet what we discovered in the text from last week is that Jesus has authority over nature. Yes, this storm was serious, so serious that had he not acted, him and all of his disciples would have drowned and there was nothing they could do. But Jesus showed them with a word. He had authority over nature. That's what we saw last week. In a few weeks, we're going to see from the, from the next story that debilitating diseases and even death itself, the thing we fear most is under the authority of Jesus. But today, today we're con- confronted with another source of power that is destructive and deadly, but is often ignored and overlooked and we think can we not talk about this topic (laughs) but we must we must as christians we know from the opening pages of the bible that there is a deceiver a devilish opponent of the triune god who hates god's people he hates image bearers of god and he will do Everything to destroy the image bearers of God. And here in Luke chapter 8 verses 26 through 37, we meet the devilish minions that are at work in this man who runs to Jesus. And by seeing 
by seeing how tormented this man was, we're given a glimpse into the wicked ways of the enemy. Think about the description we're given of this man. This poor man runs around unclothed, shameful, without a home, in such bad shape that the only place he can live is among the dead. He's out of his mind. He's so crazy, they have to chain him up. And sometimes he gets so out of control, he breaks the chains and runs away from the guard and the chains. And he runs out into the wilderness where he spends time helpless and alone. What an image. See, this description of this man is meant to demonstrate how powerful these demons are that possess him. And we need to observe this demonic power, not so that we're afraid, or not so afraid of them, but we're to observe this demonic power in order that we're not ignorant or naive when it comes to the spiritual battles we face all around us. We must not. We must not, as Dr. Cole said, live as if there's two characters in this story, God and us. There is more at work. And up to this point in Luke's gospel, we've discovered that the devil and demons, they can tempt people. They can steal the message of the gospel. Remember the parable of the soils? They can oppress, they can possess, and they can torment people. Ultimately, ultimately, they oppose Jesus and his kingdom. That's why they're so obvious and active as soon as Jesus shows up. Why are there a few demon stories in the Old Testament? Because when Jesus shows up, the very one they exist to oppose, it becomes clear everywhere you look. They are in opposition to him. So how should we respond now that we are aware of how active and destructive and deadly the demonic world is? What should we do? Do we all need a seminar in tactics of spiritual warfare? Do we all need to learn how to do an exorcism? What shall we do now that we see how destructive and deadly and active the devil and demons are? Here's what we must do. We must believe that even though demons are active, they have been defeated. That's point two. A defeated demonic army. A few things need to be pointed out in this story that are of great significance when it, when it comes to understanding what's being communicated about Jesus and his authority. And Luke informs us as the reader, if we were paying attention to the way Luke was giving us clues all along, he let us know that this man who was demon-possessed, had many demons in him. Even before we hear the man say that, did you notice even back in verse 27 and all throughout verses 30 through 33, the language was plural. 
we and they. Also, we, we, we must pay careful attention to what happens in this encounter when Jesus just said to the man who demons are speaking through, what is your name? And notice what he says, legion. Now that's not really his name. He's identifying something. He's identifying two things that go together that are extremely important for us to see. First of all, a legion is a military term involving thousands, maybe up to 5,000 in a regiment, in a Roman regiment. That's what, that would have been a legion. So he is not only saying there are many demons in this man, which we know because when they go into the pigs, it doesn't say a few pigs, a lot of pigs. But most importantly, by hearing this term legion, it paints a vivid picture of what Jesus was up against. Jesus is up against an army. Jesus is up against an army, not simply just this crazed man who could have easily turned on him at any point and overpowered him. No, this fight between Jesus and many Demons is what's taking place. This is Jesus versus many of them. Don't miss this emphasis. It, it appears to not be a fair fight. Here's many of them and Jesus. And yet, look what happens once this crazed man approaches Jesus, verse 28. And when he saw Jesus... He cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. In this story and in every story in which demons encounter Jesus, notice what happens. They immediately acknowledge who he is and they are submissive to his authority. Not only that, his enemies who appear to be so powerful and so destructive, notice what they do. They plead for mercy in his presence. <laughs> When you just look at this man, you think, man, those things are wicked, they're strong, they're bad, and then Jesus shows up, and they're like the little puppy who seems tough until you walk in, and then he rolls over in front of you, and you're like, oh man, you had me fooled. When I saw you walking up, you were this big, ferocious dog, you showed me your teeth, and now I get close, and you just roll over. You gave away your secret. You're a wimp. You're a sucker. That's what's happening here. When I think about these terrorizing demons begging Jesus not to terrorize them, don't you love the irony? They've been terrorizing this man. Jesus shows up and they say, please don't terrorize us. When I think about this story, it makes me think of the grade school bully that appears to be so tough to his tormentors. He's one of those kids that not only has a, a mean streak about him, but he just happens to be bigger than all the other kids and he loves it and he uses his power and his influence to pick on other kids and he's, he terrorizes them until the father of one of his victims shows up. <laughs> oh man, he's bigger than every other kid. He's tougher, he's stronger, he's meaner until one day, one of the kids he's been picking on, he feels a tap on his shoulder 
And it's one of the dads. He's a bodybuilder. He's 6'5", 275. His hand is bigger than this boy's head. Now when that boy turns around, who seems so big and so tough and so strong and so mean, sees this boy's father, the bully doesn't look all that scary any longer, does he? That's what's taking place here. Jesus makes this evil, destructive, and deadly army of demons look quite pathetic. Oh, they're, they're, they are nothing to be messed with. But Jesus shows up. And we are aware of his power. Not only do they acknowledge that he's God, but notice this, they, they acknowledge he's their judge. And that thought is more than they can bear. Notice what they do, verses 31 through 32. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That's the place of judgment. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And notice what happens. Notice what happens once Jesus grants these demons permission to not have to go to the place where they belong. But they said, Jesus, please, 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 please don't send us to the place where we belong. Get those pigs, can we just go there? Jesus says, go for it. Notice what happens in verse 33. It ends up being destructive and deadly. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down and into the steep bank, into the lake, and they drowned. Jesus didn't make that happen. The demons did. If we weren't convinced of how nasty and vile and destructive and deadly they are, here they are again. <laughs> they leave this man, and what do they do? Cause death destruction and then pay careful attention to what takes place after these demons enter into this pig and then they drown verses 34 through the first part of verse 37 we're told when the herdsmen saw what had happened they fled and told it in the city and in the country the people went out to see what had happened and they came to jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen him told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. Next week, we're going to come back to this man who was delivered. And we're going to come back to these town people who asked Jesus to leave. For now, I simply want to draw attention to this observation. I want to draw attention to how this story in many ways is similar to last week. If you remember last week's story... 
and you look at today's story, in both stories, they end with the spotlight on Jesus. Think about that. By the end of last week's story and by the end of this story, all eyes are on Jesus, no longer on the storm and no longer on the demons. What's everybody talking about? Who is this that can do such things? And notice this, in both stories, the people that were involved were filled with fear because they encountered the power of Christ. Do you remember what the disciples did? As soon as Jesus tells the storm to stop and it immediately goes from a violent storm to in a nanosecond nothing, they didn't give each other a fist bump and say, cool. It says they were afraid. Now their fear is very different from the response of the town people, but notice what we're told twice by Luke. Word gets out about this man who was healed and about all that took place between him and the demons in the herd. And they didn't say, well, that really sounds neat. They're afraid. Now, I mention this emphasis in order to draw out the final theme of this passage, and it's the central theme. Jesus, the conquering king. That's what we're to see in this story is Jesus is the conquering king. Why do I say that? Well, think back to chapter 8, verse 1. We're told in Luke's summary in chapter 8, verse 1, that, that Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Have you ever asked this question? Why is it that Jesus is preaching a message about the kingdom of God? Why not preach about salvation? Why not go around telling everybody you're the Messiah? Why is he preaching a message about the kingdom? That's the summary phrase of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus is the long-awaited king from the line of David. Do you remember what the angel announced to Mary? Do you remember what the angel said to the shepherd? That this child born in Bethlehem was of the line of of David, which means as the long-awaited king, everyone would have expected him to lead his people into battle because kings at that time didn't sit in war rooms telling generals by teleconference what to do. A king led his people into battle. And if Jesus was the long-awaited king from the line of David, you know what everybody expected? He's going to lead us into battle. And what we discover in this story is that Jesus did enter into battle, but not against Rome like everybody would have expected him to. Everybody's thinking, when are you going to call us to arms against Rome, these oppressors of ours? And little do they know Jesus has been fighting a far greater battle against a far greater enemy. He was fighting against principalities and powers in this 
That's what Jesus was doing. Oh, he was the king. He was the king to lead his people in to battle. But he was leading them into a different battle than any of them had eyes to see. But as the, everyone, listen, everyone here reading Luke's gospel, remember Luke's gospel is just steeped in the Old Testament. If anything, the, the point of Luke's gospel is to show Jesus is fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament. Well, if that's the case, everyone familiar with the Old Testament should have expected the long-awaited Messiah, the king, to overcome Satan and his kingdom. Why do I say that? Because maybe the most important verse in all of the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and God is now pronouncing this curse on them, he says to the woman, after he curses the man, he will curse, bring curses upon the woman and then on the, on the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Hear this in the singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he? There's going to come one from the woman who's expected to crush the head of the serpent. That would have been the expectation all along. And that's the reason. That's the reason that John in his first letter, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, he says in the, the last part of this verse, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a pretty clear and bold statement. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Here's a question for you. Is that how you view the mission of Jesus? That Jesus came because there is an enemy that often we ignore. But it is not an enemy we can't ignore. And it is not an enemy we could have fought and won against. And Jesus came to defeat that enemy on our behalf. So here's, here's another question. Do you view the topic of spiritual warfare as something that just happens around us? that we're to engage in by using weapons like the word of God in prayer. Often when people talk about spiritual warfare, my concern is, is that the main character is missing. There's demons and there's us and we got the prayer, we got the word. My question is, where's Jesus? Where does the truth of the gospel fit into our strategy of spiritual warfare? You see, if Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and according to this passage and other New Testament passages, Jesus defeated the enemy, shouldn't that inform how we engage the fight? Shouldn't it engage or, 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 or affect the way we engage in battle? Think about Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted by Satan. 
If you remember back months ago when we looked at that passage, I think we missed the clearest, most obvious point of that passage. We often go there and we see Jesus being tempted by Satan. And what does Jesus do? We think he's fighting with the word of God. And that's why he was victorious. He had the sword of the, of the word. No, Jesus was victorious because he was the true Israel and the perfect Adam and he obeyed in our place. See, the reason he was victorious is because of who he was. So Jesus isn't just a model. Hey, when you're going through, when you're going through temptations, just, just quote the Bible. Hey, that's a good thing to do. But the Bible doesn't bring victory over the enemy. Jesus does. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul just said in those two verses? He just stated that our sins had to be atoned for. And the devil had to be defeated and both occurred at the cross. Both occurred at the cross. Not only was our sin atoned for, the devil was defeated. See, by dying on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers of darkness by removing their most lethal weapon. You know what the lethal weapon of the devil is? It's not some scary face. It's deadly accusations. But when Jesus died in our place, he removed the one thing the enemy can use against us. The accusations that are more than accusations. We are guilty before a holy God and we deserve his Judgment, that was the greatest weapon, the lethal weapon of the enemy. And Jesus removed the one thing the enemy has against us, which means, friends, listen, if we belong to Jesus, the enemy has no power to condemn us or to defeat us because Jesus took our defeat to the cross and he took it to the grave. Jesus bore the wrath of God we deserve when he died and he rose again. So we don't have to fear the enemy any longer because we fear Christ instead. We don't fear the enemy any longer. Because we fear Christ, our conquering king. Don't miss the predominant tone of this passage. You know, every, every passage has a tone. Don't miss the tone of this passage. The tone of this passage is that of fear. Did you notice that? 
When it tells us that the, the man fell down before Jesus loudly, he's not worshiping Jesus. You know what that was happening in that moment? The demons were afraid. That's why they're begging. There's fear. And what did the townspeople do? They fear. But don't miss this. Both fear Jesus in a sinful way. Even though the demons confess probably the most orthodox Christological statement you can imagine. Both of them, both groups, fear Jesus in a sinful way because they didn't worship him, they rejected him. And the most chilling words of this entire passage come at the end of verse 37. So he got into the boat and returned. He said, Jesus, if everything we've heard is true, we don't want you here. And you know what the most terrifying thing is? Jesus said, okay, I'll leave. I'll be on my way. Friends, I hope you see the Lord in his mercy has given us this message today in order to prevent us from pushing Christ away. Why is this story in our Bibles to present, prevent us from pushing Christ away. And God gave us in his mercy this message so that we would draw near to Christ and fear Christ above all else. Listen to this. It's only when we fear Christ more that we will stop fretting over things less fearful. Can I say that again? It's only when we fear Christ more that we will stop fretting over things less fearful. What are the things you're afraid of today that you're fretting over? The reason you're fretting over them isn't because they are not fearful. Oh, they are fearful. But they're nothing compared to Jesus. And when we grow in our fear of Christ, we will stop fretting over things less fearful. So how can we fear Christ more? Here's how we fear Christ more. By worshiping him for who he is and what he's done. You know what this story tells us when we read it in light of last week's story? There's no one like Jesus. He has no rivals. There is nothing that can defeat him and that he can't defeat. And that ought to do something to us. It ought to secure our trust in Jesus. He has no rivals. No rivals in, in, the, in nature no rival spiritually. He, he, he overcame death in the grave. There, there is nothing that can keep him down. Don't we want 
to be with him. Listen, if Jesus has no rivals, then he alone deserves our allegiance, our honor, our worship, and our praise. Do you know what we're about to do after I pray for us? We're going to stand in a moment and we're going to grow in our fear of, of Christ. You know how we're going to grow in our fear of Christ? We're not going to tremble. We're going to sing. We're going to lift up our voices in song and we're going to sing about our beautiful, amazing, conquering king. And when we do that, you know what's supposed to happen? We're not just supposed to read some words up on the overhead. As we sing those words, we're supposed to, in our hearts, say, oh, that is such good news. That is our king. He's worth living for and dying for. And he deserves all the glory. Let's pray. Father, I ask of two things now. Two things only you can do that I believe you desire to do in this place. First of all, I, I pray that for every single person here this morning, in light of this message, we would fear Christ more. Help us to do that. We can hear that admonition. But Lord, we need your help to give us spiritual eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ as our conquering king. Secondly, Lord, I believe that this morning you not only want to open up our eyes to the enemy, I believe there are people here this morning that are being affected and under the sway of the enemy. They are believing lies. They are being distracted. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would deliver them. Whatever bondage they're in, Lord, would you deliver them? And the ultimate deceptive work of the enemy, we're told is to blind the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. Lord Jesus, we ask right now that you would bind the enemy and he wouldn't be able to bind the eyes of those who keep hearing these messages, but they still can't put their faith in Jesus. It's not because Jesus is not glorious. It's because they can't see it. So we pray. Open their eyes. Right now. There's nothing that the enemy wants to do more and keep people from responding to the good news that Jesus is their Savior and has paid their price and their condemnation fell on Him. But I pray that today, right now, you would liberate them from the enemy. 
that right now they would believe Lord thank you for your word it is powerful may you write the truths that we've heard on our hearts and may we live differently in light of what we've heard all for the glory of King Jesus we pray this in his name Amen.